you have a Bible, please grab it and open it to Acts chapter 1, the book of Acts chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible or if you're new to the Bible, uh, you're welcome to use the Bibles in front of you and you'll find the passage on page 966, 966. It's the first chapter, so you won't get lost there. And the small numbers are the verses. Uh, We're going to look mainly at verses 6 through 11 this morning. 6 through 11. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do what you say in this passage. That you would send your spirit, that we might receive power to testify to the risen and ascended King. Lord, you would fill us with your spirit to believe it and to go out of here and walk in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for for Easter, Michael Kruger, who's a scholar in canonicity and the New Testament, posted an article with an apologetic for the resurrection that's often overlooked. He pointed out how other would-be Messiah movements all ended when the Messiah died. Jesus was not the only one that people thought was the Messiah in the first century or around that time. But all of them died a violent death at the hands of Rome. And in each case, all Messiah movements died with the Messianic figure. So the question is, how is it that when Jesus died, his disciples, within a very short time, went from being dejected to growing rapidly and spreading across the globe? The answer we give to that has to account for what never happened. It turns out death is the number one killer of messianic aspirations. Yet after Jesus died, something radical happened. The disciples turned from dejected former followers to powerful witnesses. His messianic movement radically accelerated, did not dissipate, but accelerated after his death, to within one generation, many thousands of thousands of followers on multiple continents. What happened? The answer, of course, is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. That is the good news of of God, what we call the gospel. What will have the same kind of transformative impact on you and me is that you and I must encounter their witness to the gospel. You and I must encounter the same witness that they took on and spread across the earth. When you think of the gospel, what do you think of? God, a holy God, creator, righteous and pure, good and benevolent, kind. Man, sinful, rebellious, broken, we sometimes say, at odds with God, departed from him fallen away from him, violent against each other. Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect God-man, perfect life, holy in all of his ways, living the life that sinners did not live, totally reconciled to God, even though he had never been separated from him, dying a death that he did not deserve, but sinners, man deserves, And rising from the dead. 
and response. We must respond to that truth. That Jesus has died for sinners, been raised to re- for their reconciliation, and invites and calls the whole world to come to God through him. When you think of Christ, what do you say? We say he lived, he was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised. And if you go further, we say coming again. But in order to talk about that, you have to talk about something else that's very important. We have to talk about ascended. Jesus was ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, the ascension is something that we often don't think a lot about. I don't remember a sermon I've ever heard on the ascension, and I've only recently read one book on it. Perhaps that's because it's only described in two places. Luke chapter 24, the part one of the Luke-Acts narrative written by the same author, the end of Luke in chapter 24, and then here in our passage this morning in chapter 1 of Acts. But while it's only described there in those two places, it's mentioned many places. Jesus told the disciples he was going away to prepare a place for them. When he mentions that he's going away, he's referring to his ascension. He told Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9 says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that, but that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. The fact of the ascension plays a significant role in the message of the book of Hebrews. All through the book of Hebrews, the ascended Lord, the fact that he has ascended, stands looming large over the entire message. Consider chapter 6, verses 19 to 20 in Hebrews. We have this sure and steady anchor the soul of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, that having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The ascension answers the question, where is Jesus now? But what is the ascension? The ascension is the event of Jesus ascending into heaven. It is his journey. But the point of that journey is what takes place by it. Why does he ascend? When Jesus ascended, significant things took place. The most important of them is that Jesus entered into his glory and sat down at the right hand of the Father. There, right now. Christ reigns as King Supreme, acting as the High Priest in the inner chamber of the heavenly temple on our behalf. He intercedes for the saints all day and all night forever. He presents his blood on our behalf that cleanses us from all of our sin, past, present, and future. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son into the earth to give life to the church. Jesus has ascended. What happened to turn the disciples around from a hiding, dejected group after the Messiah had died? Well, he was raised from the dead. He appeared to many, and he ascended to the heavens, 
and he sent his spirit to testify. There's one thing that we should walk out of here this morning by God's grace to get our hands on. And that is this. We are to testify to the ascended king by the power of the Holy Spirit. Testify to the ascended king by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's just going to be the two ways that we look at that. Number one, testify by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's verses 6 through 8. Testify by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, testify to the ascended king. Testify to the ascended king. That's verses 9 through 11. Let's think about testifying by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. The kingdom of God is the setting that the ascension takes place in. If you'll notice, if you just cast your eye up to the verses that were before that, notice verse 3. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, if you're taking notes on your church calendar, uh, taking notes at home, you'll notice that we're a little early for the ascension. It happens 40 days after the resurrection, but that's okay. We can still look at it. It's next in the narrative of what happens to Jesus. Jesus spent 40 days from the time that he came out of the grave until the time that he left the earth and ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. And what was he doing during that time? Well, he was presenting himself alive to many uh, the, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 narrates that he presented himself to all of the disciples. We understand from the different gospels that he presented himself many times to them in different occasions and in different settings. The end of Luke shows that he even ate food to demonstrate that he was alive. Not that he needed food. He's in a resurrected eternal body. He doesn't need food, but he eats it to show them, look, I'm material. I'm not a phantom. This is real. But while he's doing that, he's teaching them about the kingdom. That is the subject of 40 days of teaching to the disciples. And this is the context of of his whole ministry and the ascension itself. Now, if you remember the Gospels, Jesus was presented as a king throughout his entire ministry. Everything about what we know about Jesus is holding out to us, Jesus is king. His pedigree, if you just take the time to read the genealogies, you know, the ones you always skip during your annual Bible reading plan because you say, why are all these names here? Well, one of the reasons is that Jesus is a king and they, that the authors want to show you that his pedigree makes him qualified to be the king. But also his actions, the things that he was doing, like riding a donkey into Jerusalem, uh, the way that he was confronting authority, the way that he spoke with authority is saying something about who he is. His title, he is Messiah, or in Greek, it's Christ. So when we say Christ has ascended, we say the Messiah has ascended. And what we mean by Messiah is king. The king has ascended. His title is king. He also gave law. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. And all of that teaching with authority, he's giving law just like kings do. 
And his priestly work of making people clean and healed, even though it was priestly work, that's also something that kings did. Remember David making sacrifices and bringing in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. David purchases the land where the temple is going to be built, and he sacrifices animals. Kings acted as priests sometimes. So all of this is in the disciples' heads when they approach Jesus resurrected. And here they are on the top of a, of a hillside in Bethany, outside of Jerusalem. And they ask him in verse 6, So is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time? Now pay attention to what's assumed in the disciples' question. They are ready to take over and to push Rome out. That's what they want. They want to see Herod gone. They want to see the centurions out of their streets and out of their homes. They don't want to pay taxes to Caesar anymore. So when they say to Jesus, is it now? What they have in mind is the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, and perhaps the promises that this would be restored. They are ready to take over and push Rome out. It's as if on some levels they're saying, I know, Jesus, you said put away the sword in the garden that you had to die, but now you're raised. And now we have all this power and authority. Is it time now? They're ready to see the Lord's enemies vanquished and the king conquer. And of course, that was promised. They're thinking biblically. Remember what Psalm 110 and many other places said? Something like this. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's next in the reign of Jesus? Well, we are expecting to make all of his enemies bow before him. Is it now that the kingdom is going to be restored? Messiah brings kingdom expectations. But they didn't yet understand that there is an interval between Jesus' resurrection and his earthly rule to come. In fact, their scope may have still been limited and a little bit too small because they're thinking about Israel. All of this tells us that there's two stages of the kingdom. There's dominion, that is the power, the influence, the authority that Jesus has. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the resurrected Lord and King. He has the dominion. He has the power. He reigns now. But because of this interval, there's a two-stage. There's still this sense in which of a domain, the spatial realm belonging to the rule. Every king has a kingdom. Every king has boundaries. Every king has a countryside. Every king has a, has a land full of people. So Jesus, how about that? That's what they're after. That's what they're thinking about. But listen carefully again to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the time when, according to verse 4 of this chapter in Acts 1, they will receive the promise of the Father. There is something yet to do. There is something yet to happen. And so we have a promise. We didn't read this earlier, so look at verse 4. It says, While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, You have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. 
They want to talk about kingdom, dominion, and domain. Jesus says, we've got the domain, or we've got the dominion, but right now, you need to wait for the promise of the Spirit. There's something to happen. Look at verse 8. So jumping down, they've asked the question. Here's what he says. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They were to be his witnesses. What's next, Lord? What are we going to do? Jesus' answer, I'm going to leave. But you are going to be my witnesses. Three things to notice about this. Three things to notice about this. Notice that there is a promise of the Spirit that has to be fulfilled. There's a promise of the Spirit. Jesus, it's, it's mentioned in verse 4. It's also mentioned in verse 8. And if you have the Gospels in your memory, you know that in John chapter uh, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus had an extended period where he talked to them about how the Spirit was going to come. Another one, like me, is going to come. The Comforter. He will come. And he says, I won't leave you as orphans, though I'm going to leave. I'm going to send another. The Spirit has to come. That was promised first by the Father in places like Joel chapter 2. We won't go there and read that this morning, but if you just jot that down as a reference that you can look at, it's a promise that when Israel, after being judged for her sin and purified from her idolatry, God was going to bring them back and restore them with a great revival. They were going to have their hearts turned towards Him. They were going to uh, be purged from, from sin, and the kingdom of Israel would be restored, just like the disciples are asking for. And then at that time, it says, after that, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And every one of my people will see visions and dream dreams and prophesy in my name. The spirit was going to come. And that's vital because that's what's missing in the old covenant. That's why it's what's missing in the world. When we just go out and we just recite the Ten Commandments to people. It's true. And it is a a list of commandments that condemn the world. But the world does not have the power to obey the commandments. We are responsible for obeying them. We are happy to disobey them. But it is the Spirit that transforms us and turns our hearts to God and makes us want to obey them. And so it is good news that the Spirit would be poured out. This is a promise that has to be restored. And Jesus says, that's what's next. So there's a promise of the Spirit. But notice the second thing, there's a purpose of the Spirit. There's a purpose beyond obedience. That's going to happen in our text. Notice again what he says in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. The language of witness is legal. We tend to think of it as maybe like just sort of sharing a testimony. Maybe sharing our experience of something. But biblically it means something far more weighty. Witness is legal language. It's not just that the disciples were to share a report. They were to be witnesses as in a court of law. Deuteronomy 19.5 establishes for all of Israel that one witness is never enough to establish a matter before a judge. If one witness is all you got, then you've got to just say, we don't know. Even if the other witness says, I saw it with my own eyes, you say, well, we need two. We've got to have two. 
So Deuteronomy 19.5 establishes two or more witnesses as the standard for a courtroom testimony. And it's this that's the background to Jesus saying that they're going to be his witnesses. He wants them to testify in the world as though the world itself is a courtroom. So that every time the gospel of the good news of Jesus, that he is the resurrected king, is presented, a trial is happening in the hearts of the people as it's being presented. All of us, when presented with Jesus, are are weighing before us, do I believe this or not? Do I believe the report? Did it really happen? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Are sins actually forgiven by the death of Christ? Did he actually rise from the dead? Did he really ascend to heaven? Is he actually the king or is someone else? Am I the king? (laughs) He's going to send his disciples. They are to be witnesses for him. Now, this is exactly what you see playing out throughout the book of Acts. Just here in chapter 1, notice verse 21. At this point, right after this, they're going to choose someone to take Judas's place, the betrayer. And look at what they say for who they're looking for. Verse 21, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during, accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. From among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. They're not just looking for anybody. They're not asking for somebody to go on a mission trip. They are asking, who was it among us that was there at the beginning who can testify to everything that was taught by Jesus, everything he did. They can testify to the trial. They can testify to the inner uh, conversations. They can report that they saw Jesus alive. I always find it sad and somewhat amusing, but there were two that were put forward in the following verses. Joseph and Matthias, and Joseph did not become an apostle. He was almost an apostle. How would you like to live with that? (laughs) I wonder if that was his nickname, Joseph, almost apostle. But he was qualified, so he could still hold up. Like, guys, I was there. I was there. But he was not chosen. It's an official position of witnessing and giving court testimony to, to verify the testimony that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the resurrected Lord. He is the king of the universe. This is what they're supposed to do. What are they proving by their witness? Well, it's what the resurrection proves. That's why they have to testify to the resurrection. Here's what it proves. It proves that Jesus of Nazareth is the rightfully crowned king of all people. Do you remember what Jesus was crucified for? Think about it. Whenever someone was crucified, they had their crime inscribed on a plaque and hung above their heads for all to read so that the passerbys on the road could see the criminal, be afraid of Rome, and see the crime so that they would say, I don't want to do that. You remember what was inscribed All four Gospels report this. He was inscribed, above his head was inscribed, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Jesus was crucified for being king. He was put on trial. And do you remember that this was debated? When the inscription went above his head, the Jews said, no, 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 you can't put that, take that down. 
That's not why he's crucified. He's crucified for claiming to be king. He's crucified for being a fake king. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Lord. And you remember what Pilate said? I've written what I've written. And in the irony of God, in truth, the reason Jesus dies is above his head. Because he's the king. So the apostles were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection as a legal testimony to the world that Jesus of Nazareth is the crowned king by God himself. The third thing here is the scope of the witness. The scope of the witness. Look again at verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, if you're studying Acts, this is a good place to just highlight. This is the, this is the program for the whole book. So chapters 1 through 7 are going to be all about the witness in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 until... I'm blanking on the other one. I'll let you find it. Goes to Judea and Samaria. And then the latter third of the book is devoted to the gospel going to the Gentiles. And it ends with Paul preaching in Rome and saying the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. This is the program of the gospel witness. And it's going to go forward. And Acts is going to follow that narrative. Now this is where the witness gets interesting. The message we proclaim is that there is a king over the whole earth. And that his kingdom has come near and everyone who enters by grace through faith will escape his coming judgment on his enemies. If you're here this morning and you've been hearing so far what we've thought about with Jesus and the good news, God, man, Christ response. God is calling you to respond to the message that God has a king. And it is Jesus who lived in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. He was crucified because he was God's king, but he was raised by God because he's God's king. And he has ascended into heaven, and he is your king. Now, if you acknowledge him, and you come to him in repentance and faith, he will receive you, forgive you, and bring you into his kingdom. But if you resist him, if you say no, if you revolt against him, if you deny his word and doubt his word and resist him through your life, you become his enemy. And you will suffer his judgment in the last day. But it is grace to you because he's put you here now to hear this message so that you would escape that. But beware, because in the last day, these very words that you hear now will be used against you in a court of law. And God will hold you accountable to hearing his truth and refusing his king. Don't do that. The message we proclaim is that God has a king. But the way he will spread his kingdom is not the way of the world. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? If my kingdom were of this world, what would my disciples do? They would fight. They would fight. Jesus doesn't send his apostles to raise up local militias. They don't seek political office. They don't begin propaganda campaigns. They don't start media companies. They have no national identity. And instead of one language, the gospel is preached to all nations in their own tongue. 
In fact, the victory they announce often brings them social ostracism, misunderstanding, persecution, and in some cases even death. But the way that they teach, the way they proclaim, is going to upend the world. As people embrace the life of the king and they lay down their arms and they beat their, their, their swords into plowshares. And they start to turn the other cheek. And they start to humble themselves. And they start to embrace, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. It changes the world. It upends kingdoms. It changes all of society. God's kingdom is going to spread through preaching, not through war. In this way, the kingdom of God will spread to all the nations and it will subvert the kingdoms. Like sand underneath your feet at the beach when the tide's coming in, it will cut away the power of the nations as they crumble before the Lord. Isn't that good news? This is what happens in every individual heart as well. The kingdom of our own hearts is corrupted by the power of Jesus as king. And we have to let it go. If you're going to walk with Jesus, you're going to have to let the tide come in and take the sand away. And when he brings you to your knees, you got to fall. But that's good because he changes you there. So church, how does this apply to us today? Lots of ways. Some ideas are that we should believe their report. If the apostles are sent into the world to testify in a court of law of the world and put Jesus on tri- the trial of Jesus back out into the world before us, you and I should believe their report. You're in the judgment seat. Right now, you're in the seat to give a verdict on Jesus and to say, king or not king. We should say king. So say king and enter the kingdom. We should take the witness stand. We should join the apostles in their witnessing by the power of the Holy Spirit and speak that God has a king. Listen, we all fail in this. I, I fail in this. As I, as I meditate on this passage, I am convicted about how weak and shameful. I mean, if, if this is this powerful and this truth, why are we not speaking about it? We're too worried. What are they going to say? How's it going to be received? Uh, will God help me? Is the Spirit really going to be there? What if they object to something and I don't know the answer? <laughs> Listen, Jesus is on his throne. Just say it. Just say it. Repeat the testimony about Jesus received. Take steps based on the promise of the Spirit. Listen, the Spirit gives power. He said to the disciples, you will receive power. But guess what? It doesn't just stay with them. When you keep reading in Acts chapter 2, as people believe, the Spirit comes on everybody. And to be in Christ is to have the Spirit. If you're sitting here today and you're a follower of Jesus, the same Spirit that was in Jesus... Think about this. The same spirit that was in Jesus is in you right where you sit. And he is there to fill you, to speak, to believe, to act, to move, to obey. Give in to that. Lean in to the, to the spirit's work. The spirit gives words. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, you're going to be put before kings and authorities and rulers. He says, don't plan ahead of time what you're going to say. 
What is the very thing that we do anytime we know we're going to speak? We plan ahead of time. I've spent most of my week preparing ahead of time for this moment. I don't think that that's disobedient. But what Jesus is talking about is when we go out and we're in the world and we're worried about what people think and we're worried about people we're going to say or what kind of objections we might occur or just how I'm going to be received or if, if, if they're going to be mad at me afterwards or anything like that. All of those moments, we're supposed to put those aside and just walk into it and watch the Spirit work. And I can tell you that you will be amazed because God will cause you to say things. And you'll remember verses you didn't realize that you had memorized. (laughs) Now, that doesn't happen by magic. It happens as you read the Bible. It happens as you try to memorize Scripture. It happens as you put yourself under the preaching of the Word. And you sit here each week and you read the Word. And as you speak about it to others and and the, the Word of God moves around among us, it will get inside of you. But there's a lot of Bible in there. There's a lot of Bible right here. <laughs> Which one do you say and when? The Spirit activates at that time. He brings words. And he has you say things. Sometimes I say, I give an answer, or I quote a verse verbatim. And I'm like, I didn't know I could do that. But there it was. Other times I try and I butcher it to pieces. But the Lord works. And so you and I are supposed to believe that, receive the power of the Spirit, and walk in that, and step out in that. If you've never tried, you need to try. Because that means you're not believing what Jesus says here. That's not okay. If you belong to the King, and the King's on His throne, we have no reason not to believe His Word. So we should act on it. All right, we have to keep moving. Be about the King's business with your life. Jesus is ascending, but we are staying. I'm going to come back to that at the the very end. But just think about this. Jesus is ascending, but he leaves the disciples. So we have work to do. We are to be about the king's business. What about you? Is that what you're about? Is that how your week would be characterized? Well, this week's past, but this coming week is starting. You can be about the king's business this week. Luke twenty four fifty two says that they returned to Jerusalem. And this is the main reason we're not yet with Jesus. And this is why he, time is continuing. The gospel has to finish going to the ends of the earth. And there are lots of worthwhile things to do in your life. But this is primary. Determine in your heart right now. Ask God to help you right now. Pray to him. God, help me to make your work primary. All right, let's think about the last part. Testify to the ascended king. Testify to the ascended king. If you're going to walk in the power and you're going to testify by the power of the Holy Spirit, what do we testify to? We're we're going to testify to the ascended king. Look again at verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men with white clothes stood by them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. What's the connection between the kingdom of God, the witness of the Spirit, and Jesus' ascension? Why does Luke report the departure of Jesus? I mean, really, you could think about it. Wouldn't it just be simple just to leave that part out? 
and just say, yeah, he's in heaven. It's interesting that it's reported when he goes and how he goes. Well, one thing that we can say is that it's because it's what happened. Luke is just reporting. He's saying, this is what took place. But with Luke 24 and Acts 1-3 together, you'll notice that an emphasis is made on the fact that Jesus was not appearing in a vision or some sort of ghost-like appearance. He was emphatically alive. The ascension also helps the disciples understand why they see him no more. Where is he gone? It would make sense too. Remember in some of the accounts that Jesus, as he appears to people, he, he, he leaves them unexpectedly. Even in Luke, the, 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 the disciples that are on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is with them. And as soon as they realize it's Jesus who they're talking to, he leaves them. He, he seems to come and go. Remember, they're behind closed doors at one point and he appears among them. Where was he before and how did he get in the door? So it would be reasonable to think, well, Jesus has just, he's just gone away. But he, he's reported to have ascended in front of their eyes. This makes his ascension a definite historical event to be marked in the course of time. But still, why is it important? Well, it's important because at this point, it's at this point that Jesus actually entered into his reign and a cosmic shift took place. Patrick Schreiner found the perfect illustration. So I'm going to give him credit for that in The Lion King. The Lion King, the movie The Lion King, tells the story of a king's ascent. From the moment the movie begins, Simba is branded as the heir to the throne. He's designated to the office at the very start of the movie. The rest of the whole story describes Simba's exile, his homecoming to Pride Rock. And when Simba returns to Pride Rock, he must battle for the throne, which has been seized by his uncle Scar. And Simba conquers Scar and the hyenas. But even though that has been, he's been designated, appointed, and even conquered the forces of darkness, there is work that remains incomplete. At the end of the movie, an important scene occurs. The camera shifts to Rafiki, who takes his staff and points Simba to Pride Rock. An old era has ended, and a new one is about to begin. In order for Simba to claim his kingdom and be installed as king, he must ascend Pride Rock, the rightful place of the ruler, to ritually demonstrate that he has conquered. So Simba dramatically ascends the rock, and the movie concludes with him roaring across the, 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 the countryside, and all of the other lions roar back to acknowledge his victory, his dominion, and his authority. Jesus had to be installed as king. He had to be enthroned. He had to be recognized as king. He had to ascend to the right hand of the Father, sit on the throne, and receive from him all dominion and authority. Now, this isn't just an animated movie. Notice how verse 9 describes the ascension. Jesus went up in a cloud, and the cloud received him. What happened next is told in a series of Old Testament passages quoted and emphasized throughout the New Testament by the apostles. They give us a look into the cloud on the other side as to what happens when Jesus ascends and the cloud receives him. Daniel 7 describes the scene. Listen to, listen to the scene. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and ten thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Psalm 2 tells us what the Father said to him in that moment. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 110 verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. These passages and others like them tell us what happened in the ascension, and it marks a very important transition. Now in Jesus, the offices of prophet, priest, and king are all in one person. Jesus is enthroned as the king. And when he sat down, he sat down resting from the priestly work of sacrifice because he offered himself as the one eternal sacrifice for sin. There's no more to be sacrificed. So he sits down in his priestly role. And instead of sacrificing again and again, instead he intercedes, presenting his blood. And his prophetic ministry of proclamation is accelerated through the witness of the church. This is what happens to the the office of prophet. Jesus ascends to heaven and he says, I'm going to send the Spirit. Now, if there's anything you and I would say, we'd say, Jesus, it's better if you were here. Now, what's better, Jesus to be gone or Jesus to be present? It's got to be Jesus is present. But Jesus told the disciples, it's better that I go away for you because if I go away, the Spirit will come. Now, we don't understand why, but the Spirit indwelt Jesus in such a way that it appears that, that whatever was happening there did not allow the Spirit to go out into all the disciples. So Jesus left. Jesus ascended in his glory, sat down at the right hand, and now the Spirit is dispersed into the saints, into the church. And what's going to happen is the prophetic ministry of announcing the king and his law and his reign is going to accelerate and spread across the globe. And here we sit. Here we sit together by the power of the Spirit being brought together with the work still ongoing. But we're just one church. The gospel goes out in an accelerated fashion by the prophetic ministry of Jesus through the Holy Spirit going to the people, going to the church. This is a transition period from the, of the physical presence and ministry of Jesus to the Spirit's presence and ministry. But that ministry is a continuation, sort of a stage two. Look again at, here in chapter 1. Look at, look at verse 1, how he begins the, the Acts. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. 
That's just part one. We live in part two. That's where we sit. There's a part three, and it is coming. It's mentioned at the end. Look again at verse 11. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. The ascension implies the second coming, and it's promised with it. Jesus said that this is the beginning of the end. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's why we want to be about the king's business. There's something big coming, and it is coming quickly. And the only thing that matters is that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. That's all that matters. So that's why we've got to be about it. The book of Acts begins with Jesus and his small group of disciples on the verge of history's transformation. And it will end with them scattered abroad and the leading voice of a man who here at the beginning of the, of the book of Acts was a happy Pharisee pleased to see Jesus' followers follow him in death. And instead, he ends converted, transformed, changed as a disciple, as an apostle, proclaiming and witnessing to the resurrected Lord. Let this truth, church, fall fresh on your sight. Jesus is roaring. And everyone with ears to hear are bowing to acknowledge his rule. Do you hear his roar? This is wonderful news because he's coming. He's coming again. And the world as we know it is in transition. As we speak, the old is passing away and the new has already begun. Therefore, let us be glad. Let us sing for joy and live for him. We enjoy this kingdom now by living with it in in anticipation. Jesus has ascended and that recolors every hue of life. And it spills out into the communities that we live in. So let us walk by the spirit and let's testify to his reign. Is he king or not? I had a professor who once pointed out how they say that when the cat's away, the mice will play. But Jesus is not away. He's ascended. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's, attest, let's testify to the ascended king by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come. And come quickly. Lord Jesus, we long for you. We long for your return. And until then, God, we pray that you would fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit to testify. In Jesus' name, amen.